0: for God to speak from a cloud loudly or for the ground to shake and rumble and for the rock to fall off the cliff
1: there has been hurt there for hundred years and all of a sudden it's going to fall and then we hear something from God. I want you to understand that when we're talking about inspirational moment. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. If something like that happens in your life and God says Charlie go tell everybody this what we get here on Sunday morning before announcements, before the first song I want you to say that's God said this to me. You come in here and say, this I need to If that happens to you, then you come and say, God
0: told me to tell everybody this. Don't wait for the inspirational moment of time. Okay? The inspirational moment of time we're talking about during this time is the like the all the time, little things that you pick up here and there. You should be listening all the time. I'll give you an example. This morning, I had and I had kind of a funny thing going on at the house. I was making a batch of cornbread.
1: And some of the cornbread, as will happen when you put it in cupcakes,
0: fell off the side above the cupcake wrapper and sat on the pan.
1: So then when it went through the oven, came out of the oven, the,
0: the bit that was on the pan had turned brown. And Ariana looked at me and she said, what's those chocolate bits there? And she, she didn't know there was chocolate and cornbread. And I said, no, there's no chocolate there. That's the cornbread They just fell off the side when I put it in the cups and they cooked to look like that. And she said, I bet it wouldn't taste like
1: chocolate. And I said, you're right, it would taste like chocolate. I said, there's an inspirational moment, it was actually the second moment that we had this morning. Because sometimes you will look at something and it can go through a certain process and it can start to look good to you.
0: It can look like fun or it can look like it tastes good. It can even look like something else, right? If you've ever accidentally bitten into a wax fruit, which I imagine nobody here has ever made that mistake, right? But if you ever actually bitten or you put it in your mouth and just started to get ready to taste it,
1: you realize it can look really good. It can be some of the best looking fruit that you can find, and yet it does not taste good and it cannot nourish you. And those little bits that fell off the cornbread
0: were not chocolate, and they, they really don't taste good. And you really would have to like burnt cornbread uh, mix in order for you to taste that. Oh, yeah, that's gummy, right? So somebody might, a rare one in a, one in a hundred or something, might think, yeah, that really tastes good. Hey.
1: It tastes really better than the cornbread. But real chocolate does taste real good, and it does produce real endorphins in your body that make you feel good. Too much of it isn't good for you, but a little bit here and there. Yeah, that's good stuff. See how the enemy takes good things that God has made for us, and we use those very good things
0: to lure us away from what's really good by making you think, oh, that looks like chocolate, when in reality, it is not. Relationships can be like that. You go after somebody, a boy, a girl, a friend, uh, could be even a parent, or a cousin, or family member, whatever, and you pursue that
1: relationship. You're trying to have a good relationship with that person, and then that person starts leading you in a direction that you're not supposed to go. But you don't want to give up that relationship. That person won't listen to you about God or doesn't believe the same thing. But you don't want to give up that relationship. You keep pouring into that relationship
0: because, what well, we're supposed to be relational, right? The Bible says, love your neighbor right? Love others. We're supposed to do all of that. And the enemy will keep you carrying there, keep you working there in that relationship, which is not a healthy relationship by using misusing those words of God, right? God, we were created for a re- relationship with one being primarily, and that is God, through some people, right? That's who Amen. we really were created with relationships with. And so you can have all kinds of human relationships, and the truth is, And somebody will, maybe you disagree with me on this, but the truth is that every human relationship you have, every person, your dad, your son or daughter, your mom, your sister, all of them will be flawed. All of them. Your pastor, your relationship with me is flawed. Your relationship with your team there is flawed. Because we're all flawed human beings. Even being recreated into the image of Jesus, we still have issues.
1: Right? And so your issues are always going to come up. And they're going to rub wrong on each other because those relationships are always going to be flawed. But your relationship with God doesn't have to be like that. He is the sovereign
0: authority creator of all and you can submit to him and the two of you together can have an amazing relationship that is not flawed in the way. And the flaws are taken care of by Jesus. Okay, in
1: a minute. The flaws are taken care of by Jesus. He covers over those flaws to make that relationship good. And Jesus can do the same thing between two Christians. So if you have a godly person and a godly person, even though both might make mistakes, the relationship will be flawed, but Jesus can cover over the mistakes and bring those two people into proper unity. And that's what the church is all about. Okay, So that was an example. Now, that, that didn't look
0: like chocolate moment. Could have just went right on by. But then we got to talking about it, and she and I together saw something. And she said, I'm inspiring you a lot this morning. But really not Ariana, really, but God, right through Ariana. So I'd encourage you to look for those little, they're called, inspirational moments, right? This is not the inspirational moment. People always think, well, this is an inspirational moment, right? We're going to have an inspirational moment, right? This is us talking about the inspirational moments that we've had all week long. Now, the easiest way to be inspired by God is to go to God's inspired Word, which He filled with the Spirit, and He can teach you something you've never seen before. Even if you've read that passage a
1: hundred times before, I'll get you a second. You know, if you've read that passage a hundred times before, you can get something new out of it. That happens to you all the time. All right, do you
2: go. I've had multiple little inspiration moments this week that have been a team. Um, and in general terms, it's the strength and power of God, working through us. The amount of work and the amount of um, motivation that we don't have that God can then give us to push through. Um, and just coming together here and at the Life Station, even with my family, the amount of um, work and witness together that we can have through the pain, through the strife, through the sickness, and still get a massive amount of work and witnessing and work done um, to other people. And then people saying, how do you do it? Well, I don't. God does. And he uses me to do it. And just little bits like that, like, like we talked about in the past couple weeks, the words that we People
0: say, How do you do it? One day at a time with God on my side. That's how I do it. That's a good word. That's a good Alright, anybody else? Alright, okay. so, you know, who knows what this is? It's a circle! <laughs> it's a ring. It's a
3: ring, right? Okay. Why do people you keep a
0: line?
3: So, <laughs> this, is, this is my word, man, and I very rarely take it off my finger because I'm terrified that the one time I take it off, I'm going to lose it. Well, I've worn this thing every single day, consistently, day in, day out, and even at work, and everybody's like, well, why do you wear it at work? And it, you can clearly tell if you look at it closely, it's got scratches and things, even where I almost welded it to a car on accident. Oh, that would have been something. Yeah, it's got a little melt right here now. You get a pre-mechanic with your car. <laughs> but um, when I was... I got asked at work why I never take it off, and I gave them that reason. I was like, "Well, I just I'm afraid that I'll lose it." I, it took me forever to get mine off too. i
0: trying. let see. Because I know mine's not a ring anymore. It took me forever to
3: get mine off. But um, one of the guys asked me, he's like, "Well, why don't you take it off when you're working or anything?" And I told him because I'm afraid to lose it. And then not long after that, I heard I heard God tell me, know, the reason you don't take it off." is because you know who the other end of that ring belongs to. Yeah, so we don't. The, the ring represents the unity between you and your you and your wife. And now if I take it off, if I if I take it off just for a couple of minutes, I feel really awkward. And when I took it off at work so I can clean my hands better, um, that's when I heard God say, No, you wear that ring because it represents your wife as well. That's good word, and I think you
0: could then you can, you can go. This is why you don't take the Bible off, because you know to whom that belongs. This is why you don't take the word out of your life, because you know to whom that belongs. And this is why you don't take the cross off. Now, we don't literally have to wear a cross or have a tattoo of a cross, right? But we carry our cross daily. Why? Because He carried His cross for us. That's all connected. So this, this to follow your illustration. This is my wedding ring. You'll notice that it is no longer on. So
4: throw the flat spot for the mic's line drive?
0: Pr- probably. It's probably partly squished because of the line drive uh, is... So, um, I, I almost can't take it off, uh, except for in the middle of the winter when my fingers shrink down. Yeah. So... Uh, but I, I'm very blessed to be married. It's not, not about marriage, but we're very blessed to be married to God. But don't take off the things that God has
1: marked you with as his own. Good word. Alright, anybody else?
0: Pardon? So those of you that don't know, I am in college. I'm currently in a chemistry lab, Um, and in this chemistry lab, last week, (laughs) last week, week, we um, we did a lab about separating mixtures through different uh, physical and chemical processes, and so she gave us a mixture, like like a couple grams of a mixture of sand, salt, and um, sodium carbonate, calcium carbonate, plenty of It's what seashells are made out of. And we uh, went through the lab and we we put the mixture in water and, and or, um, dissolved off the salt. And then we put it in a funnel and um, ran acid through it to get the the uh, carbon carbonate out. And then we uh, we were left with the the sand, and then we dried and and it and weighted. And it's sort of uh, the analog to the, uh, we didn't ask the mixture what parts to take out, you know. And God's not asking us what parts of our life we have to get rid of. And some of them are going to go out like water and salt, and some of them are going to feel like hydrochloric acid mm-hmm. pulling the calcium carbonate out of us. not always going to be easy, and whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. It might just be better to ask and get a little
1: help with them. All right, so we're going to pray together at this time, and offerings, a little more worship, a couple of songs
0: children will be released, and, uh, I'm going to ask Brother Ron Matthews to we'll offer up our prayer at time. We'll join you in we're
4: praying along with Brother Ron. Here we go.
5: Let's pray with him.
0: Lord, Father
4: in heaven, we are so blessed to be here today. Lord, your ways are so far above our ways. We're so grateful that we have you, our Savior, our Creator, to watch over us, to help us walk, to show us your way when you're here, when you're here physically with us. Jesus, we can't thank you enough for, for what you've done for us and what you continue to do for us in the Spirit. I ask that you bless these tithes and offerings, one of the many, many, many things that you've got for us, which is provide income and, and blessings, and Lord, we, we give that back to you in the form of tithes, which are commanded, and we give it back to you in offerings, which are above tithes, and it's a thank you. Father, I pray that you'll bless them, help us use them to see your will be done bless this body as we gather. Continue to help us worship you. I pray it will be beautiful to your ears. Thank you. Bless this day in Jesus' name.
5: The splendor of the king clothed in majesty, that all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice here. Trembles at his voice. Trembles at his voice. How good. For I've been blessed beyond measure, and by his strength alone I'll go. Oh, I could stop and count the expresses like diamonds in my head, but those. Tr-
1: As I was uh, sitting there, I thought, "Well, I'm going to open my Bible to the reference before I get up there in the pulpit." And I, went, I was thinking to myself, Deuteronomy 19. I was like, yeah, I think it's a lot further than that." Deuteronomy 19. It seemed like we were getting close to the end of the book. And then I remembered it's Deuteronomy 29, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, we are getting close to the end of the book. We are literally nearing the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is quite an impressive feat to work our way through the entire book. There are only 33 chapters." of the book of Deuteronomy, and so uh, we've been over a year with it, but it's a big book. It is one of the larger books in the Bible, and we've made a lot of progress. And I I personally, I don't know if anybody else has gotten a lot out of it or not, but I've seen a lot of things come out of this that have really affected my life, and I'm grateful to be allowed to do it. I thank you that you allow me to do it. Imagine for a moment that you were growing up a hundred years ago or more, in the United States of America, uh, where uh, for the most of the middle of America, uh, you were dealing with a lot of small towns. Some of the towns had developed to be kind of large, but there was a lot, lot of small towns. Some of those small towns have faded away, faded into bigger towns and things like that. But if you were a young person, and you guys are, who are in the room, like Jason, you just went into uh, sixth grade? Seven. Seventh grade, thank you, sir. So you just went into seventh grade. And if you were in seventh grade, you would have kindergartners in your class with you in school. In fact, the small town schoolhouses, almost all of them had kindergarten, or, and really they didn't have kindergarten. They had that age at which they were ready, which was their kindergarten first grade. Kindergarten is kind of a little bit later development. First grade through senior and high school. So you'd have been going to the same small building, and you'd be there for six or seven hours, with kids and teenagers of all ages, and the only textbook that you had, generally speaking, to read from, unless your teacher would bring in additional works or things like that, was the Bible. So you would be learning as a first grader in the same room with somebody who was in 11th or 12th grade. And so when they're talking about algebra, you're mostly just waiting patiently. And when the first graders are talking about, you know, what's the difference between an M and an N in the alphabet, the 10th graders were working on their algebra work or whatever. And so in the same room was all this vast range of people. And so there were farmers, and then there was the general store owner's son and the Smith son and all. They, were, they come from different walks of life and like that. But they would all come to this schoolhouse because they knew there was knowledge there to be received. And while someone else was receiving the knowledge that they were getting, they might get some little piece of it or pick up some part of it. But if it was somebody who was much older than them, they probably couldn't understand it. Like they might be reading poetry, for example, or reading Proverbs out of the Bible, and the first and second graders would just get just, the, just an inkling of what they were talking about, not understanding really at all what they were talking about. And then when they were reading, uh, when they were learning colors and stuff like that, the older kids were just basically ignoring what was being said. Small town schoolhouses between the ages of first grade and senior high school, are very similar to the incident that we're going to read about in the text today. Okay, that's why I make that illustration. So grab your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Thank you so much. This is God's word. We stopped last week in verse 8. We ended with verse 8, and we'll begin today with verse 9. Okay, so 29.9 says, So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. So before we go any further there, I want you to see that he's making a point that everybody's there right? Everybody, and notice, he he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't doesn't have to say men and women, right? In other texts, we don't even get that. See, all of you men are here, and the women are not even acknowledged, but they were there. Or say, all the families are here, and that would take care of all the men, women, and children, right? But he's breaking them down to make a point. He's saying that all, all these kind of different categories, and he doesn't list all of the categories that were there. So there's something that we can learn from the list that he chooses, Okay? Because he doesn't list everybody that was there. But his point is, everyone is here, but notice how different some of you are from the others. Chiefs from the men who chopped the wood, for example, is a radical difference. That's leaders of, of families who had ten sons, and their sons had sons, and they had soldiers that had been trained up, and they, they were all working together as a, a kind of like a, an organized family, an organized military unit. That's, that's way different from the guy who just goes out and draws the water. Right? Or maybe the woman who went out and drew out of the water. So basically he's saying, we're all here, and I see that you're all different. Okay, That was his point. We're going to go on. Verse 12. Everyone's here, all the different walks of life, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God is making with you today in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he hearkens back to the promises again. Remember, this is the promised land that they're talking about. This covenant that that they were making with God was based on the promise, based on the grace, based on the holiness. We talked about all of that over the last month or so. But the bottom line is, he was saying, you're all here, and you all come from all these different parts of our society. thinks is different in their own way, and that is so that you may make this covenant. See the connection? He says, so that you may make this covenant. That's why everyone's there. That's why everyone's diverse, so that they may make the covenant. Verse 14, now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath. Okay, so now wait a minute. Not everybody, not just everybody that's there, but he says now there's someone more more than you y'all you are here and you all are different but there's someone more that's making this covenant today as well in 15 he says and he gives us answers who that is but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today for you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations from which you passed so we're down to 17 and basically what he's saying is all of you are here today, all of you are, come from different ways of thinking, different ways of living, different job backgrounds, different social economic status, whatever. You're, we're diverse, but we're all here represented. But this covenant that we're making is not even just with you as a people. And notice that when he said those who chop wood, there's a very good likelihood. He was talking about people that they had taken in battle. So not even Israelites. okay? Not blood Israelites. Not people could trace their tribe back. So the proselytes are amongst them. People who have come over to be Israelites are there. So all these people from all these diverse backgrounds, he says, but not only am I not only making this covenant with one part of Israel, but all of Israel. But on top of that, I'm not only making it with Israel, I'm making it with all those people who will come to be part of it in the future. And he says, you know how we went through all the midst of those nations. There was We saw so much difference. So many people from so many different walks of life, the way they live, the way they think, all of that. And he's saying, basically he was saying, this covenant will in theory be open to everybody. God can use it to bring anybody into relationship with him. Then 17. Moreover, you have seen their abominations. So amongst those people they went through, you saw how the evil things that they did. And their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. So they had statues that they worshipped at or statues that they sacrificed their children at and things like that. I saw how bad it is out there amongst other people. We don't have that here now amongst us, but it's very bad out there. And this covenant will be open to that, that people is what he was saying. 18, lest there shall be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And I'll break these things down in the points. so that's why I'm not breaking them down right this second. 19, and it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. In other words, he's saying there's somebody amongst you, there could be somebody amongst you that would be like that. They will boast, saying, I have peace. Even though he doesn't have peace, even though he's subject to the curse, he's not honoring God, he could say, I have peace. Verse 20, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. That's the text for the day. May God add blessings to the reading of his word. There are three things I want you to see in here. The first two might just jump right out at you. The third one is a kind of a combination of those two and might also just jump right. You might have done this by yourself in your own study, I think. Um, But the Lord really laid it on my heart. So the first thing is, I want you to see that the people that were there was everyone. Okay? So all walks of life, woodcutters and water bearers, right? Those who owned 100 oxen or whatever. Those who owned 15 flocks of sheep, had 20 shepherds working for them. All walks of life, the single, the married... Those who had betrayed God at some point in time and been restored to the community and those by sacrifice or by whatever means, those who had never betrayed God that anyone ever knew about, they were all there. All people, all walks of life. All types of education. Smarter people who know, you know, how to uh, construct things from, you know, take uh, plants and stones and whatever and bring them together and boil this and boil that and distill this and distill that and put it all together and get a medicine. And people who are like, mm, you know, I walk behind a plow, and I know you got to keep the rows straight because I don't want to—I want to get the maximum yield from the crops, right? And people who don't know any of that, and all they know is you get up in the morning to go get the water because it's hot in the middle of the day. Every walk of life and every education—those who could read and those who could not—and reading was not taken for granted at all in that day. Some could, and some couldn't. In fact, whether or not you could read was not an indicator of whether you were educated or not. Today, we want to say that if somebody can't read, it's because they're not educated. That's not even true. right? There are people who do not read well who are way smarter than people who do read well. Right? I know a man who went and got his master's degree, and he has a reading level. like fifth grade. It's all he can read. And he made it through six years of college. Right now, he had to work harder than the other guy, and in my opinion, I think he's smarter than a lot of those guys that went through and could read really well. Even though he, because he had to work harder, even though they made it through and got the same degree he did, maybe even got better grades, he worked harder and learned more in that six years than they did. But he has a fifth-grade reading level. Bottom line is this: all walks of life, all education levels, all work types, wait for it, all backstories. People who came from all different places. They might be successful businessmen now. And a lot of times we look at people right where they are right now and we think that's how they've been their whole life. But that isn't so. People come from all different backgrounds. There are people who were in one career and switched to a completely different career. Right? Completely different major in school. Whatever. All different backstories. Notice there were people there who were witnesses. They were alive to see what God did to the Egyptians, some of them. But there were people there who were converts. They didn't see any of it. They didn't see what God did to the Egyptians. They didn't see God part the Red Sea. They didn't see any of it. But they understood that it had happened or believed that it had happened, but they hadn't seen it. Some of them weren't even Israelite blood. They believed that it had happened, that God had converted them, that they have been taken in battle, and now they've become Israelites or Jews, if you will, as converts. What they were witnessing, too, was what God was doing today. What God had done in their lives. That's a lot like we are. So all walks of life, all education, all work types, all backstories, witnesses and converts. Who was gathered there? Everyone. But it goes further than that, because in verse 15, who was lumped in? Everyone who was yet to come. Look at 15 again, real quick. He says, but both, these are those who, he says, not just making the covenant and this oath with you, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. Every convert, every person who would come to be a believer, this covenant was for everybody. Everyone was lumped in. I submit to you this is a problem for me because there are people who just don't know. There are people that maybe will have a hard time ever knowing. They, they're ignorant. they ignorant. They don't have access to the gospel. They don't have a Bible. They don't have somebody to teach them. They don't know. And the possibility of their knowing seems minimal. And then there are people that, you know, I'm just keeping my head down. I'm just keeping my nose to the grindstone. I'm just doing what I got to do, right? I'm being me, doing what I got to do, day to day, in and out. And it seems like they have less chance because they're keeping their head down because they're not focused on these other things and it seems to me that psalm 131 support supports at least initially that lifestyle it says and and i'll read it to you real quick oh lord my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty nor do i involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me So I have great sympathy for the one who says, I don't really have to worry about that covenant. I really don't have to worry about the the extensions of the law, the choices that I have to make, because that's a little beyond me, right? Or those who look at the pastor and say, well, he knows more of the Word than I do, so that's why he's kind of goofy like that. I don't have to be kind of goofy like that. Or they look at Deacon Tony and say, well, he'll he'll grin and bear it. He'll get it done. He, He was able to just set everything aside and make it happen or whatever. And he can do that because he's ordained as a deacon. He's somehow special or whatever. That's just not the case. That's just not the way it works. Everyone was subject to the same standards. And then if you go a little further in Psalm 131, he says in verse 2, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. A weaned child is a child that still yearns for the breast but is now off the breast, right? And so he wants, he needs, he, everything is not taken care of for him. And then in verse 3, it says, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So the psalmist understood that no matter what walk of life you come from, no matter how educated you think you are or think you aren't, how capable to take on a task you think you are, or how incapable you think you are, it doesn't matter. You're subject to the same standards. You're subject to the same covenant, the same call of God, the same bizarre faith that makes lost people look at us and go, that person's just weird. I don't know why they're so on fire with the Lord. Why does he always say he's blessed? Why is he always praying for me? Why does he stop and pray for me in the middle of his busy day? Why does he witness? Why does he talk to me about Jesus? Why is he wearing that, that Jesus shirt? Or why does he serve without any recompense, doesn't get paid? And people look at people and think, that's strange. And that's the kind of people we're supposed to do, to be because we are dependent upon God, no matter what walk of life we came from, to understand. Now, when I, when I graduated high school, I'll go back. When I was in sixth grade, they took those standardized testings, right? And my reading level was a 12th grade reading level in sixth grade. Now, my boys did better than that. Now, and that's not always the way it is, Right? So when I, when I was 25 years old and I found out that my name, Daniel, came from the book of Daniel in the Bible, the hero of the faith, if you will, I asked my dad and he said, yeah, we named you after Daniel in the Bible. I said, well, I want to read the book of Daniel and I want to understand what it says because I think that some of this church stuff makes sense to me. I wasn't saved at the time, but it was making sense. I said, I want to read it and understand it and I can do that because I can read and understand the craziest of things, right? I can read and understand college textbooks. I can read and understand the dictionary, right? I, I could have probably learned another language. I didn't, but I probably could have. So I thought I'd read it. So I read the first chapters, first seven chapters, and guess how much of it I understood. Next to none of it, I'm going, I don't understand this. I'm reading, it's prose, it's paragraph after paragraph, it's just word after word like any other book, but I don't understand what it is that God is trying to say through this. I couldn't understand it. It doesn't matter how educated you are or how what your reading level is. You're subject to the same problems and also the same blessings as anyone else. Everyone was there and everyone was lumped in. And to say that's above my pay grade or that's outside my reach or I don't quite understand it and think that that's an excuse. That's just not true. In Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. That's why it's called Colossians. In verses 19 through 23, it says as follows Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That's talking about Jesus. So it was God the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of everything to dwell in Jesus. And through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him. I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, that means you were apart from God, you didn't have a good relationship with God. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's who we were. If you're not saved, that's who you are, 22. Yet he has now reconciled reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, So he died to bring peace between you and God in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So basically, if you become a Christian, that is to say a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a child of God through Jesus and stay the course as a Christian, right? By the way, if you don't stay the course, you know what that's called, right? That's called a liar. You said you were a Christian following the Lord, doing what it was that God wanted you to do, but things got a hold of you. Things got you distracted. Things got you challenged, whatever. You went after the cares and the riches of this world, and you thought, well, I, wanna, I want more social media, or I want more phone games, or I want more sports, or I want more hobbies, or I want more sweets, or I want more sex or i want more pleasure or whatever as you pursue after those things and eventually you get wrapped up in that so you're not producing any fruit and if if you are a christian you are a liar because you said he was lord and you're not living for him as lord but the truth is you're probably not a christian you were just lying when you said you were Let's be factual, shall you? Everyone was there, everyone from every walk of life, everyone from every education level. No one was able to say that's above my pay grade. When the pastor preaches it or the word says it, and if the pastor preaches it and it lines up with the word, or the word says it in your own private reading time, you have a responsibility to respond to what it is that God says. There is no teaching of Christianity that is above your pay grade. It is for everyone, all of it. Second thing to be seen in here is that God is calling for faithfulness, ruling out the adultery with idols that they had seen amongst so many other people. The fact is, systems, all systems everywhere must learn to excrete. You know what I mean by that, right? Your body's got to poop, right? I was uh, watching a cute movie last night with Sherry on what was left of date night, and uh, they were talking about their favorite animals. And she said, she said, what's your favorite animal? And he said, birds. And she said, birds. And he said, why, what's yours? She said, birds are nasty. He said, Why, what's yours? She said, dogs. And she and I said, Why he said, Why are birds nasty? And she said, Birds are pooping all the time, everywhere. They poop all the time everywhere. And he he said, Yeah, so are dogs. <laughs> and the point is, people excrete, systems excrete. You've got to learn to put out that which cannot be beneficial, right? So you have to learn to proficiently, that is to say, sort out what's good for you or good for the system. And whatever is not good for you or good for the system has to efficiently, indefinitely, and regularly be put out of the system. Here's how the system actually works in your body. You eat food, right? If you When you eat food, and because of the day that we live in, pretty much all food that you eat, you can almost get there with organic food, but even and only certain organic foods, like fruits and vegetables. But even then... All food has stuff in it that's not good for you. Even if it's stuff that normally might be good for you or might be good for somebody else, it could not be good for you today, right? Water-soluble vitamins, for example, once you get enough of them, you excrete them. So your body measures. Oh, I need more vitamin C. Oh, I don't need more vitamin C. When you cap and get too much and don't need it, you excrete that. So that would be good for somebody else, which means, as disgusting as this sounds, if somebody else ate your poop that had the vitamin C in it, they could be healthier. What? All systems have to dis- to learn to excrete. And they excrete what they don't need. They excrete what's not good for them. If you drink alcohol, your body has to process that alcohol, takes the energy out of it, and then you have to urinate it all out, which is why you wind up with liver poisoning. It's why you wind up with kidney failure, okay? Because your body has to process that. And it's not good for you, by and large. However, if you have a problem where you have high blood pressure and your blood is thick, a little bit of alcohol will thin your blood and keep you from having a heart attack. Wait a minute. Is it bad for you or isn't it? The truth is, everything that's in the world is good. And you're going to take it in. people are going to say things to you, do things to you, give things to you, call you to things, try to get you to promise things, promise you things, and you have to be willing and able to... Absorb what comes at you and excrete what isn't good for you. So when you eat that food and, you get that, and it's got some bad stuff in it, you got to excrete it. you got to get rid of it, right? Get rid of the bad stuff. And the good stuff stays and builds your body. That's how it works. So if you eat 5,000 calories tomorrow, burn 2,000 calories tomorrow, and excrete 1,000 calories tomorrow, you took in 2,000 calories too much, and you will weigh 2 thirds of a pound more the next day. That's exactly how it works. It's just that simple. All this, you need a fad diet, you need a bunch of exercise. It's, it's just this simple. You take in the calories, you burn the calories. If you don't burn it, you store it. Or you excrete it. Right? That's it. It's the only other... It's, what goes... It's, the building is the same way. We bring stuff in. If we keep bringing stuff in and don't get rid of some stuff that we don't need, eventually the building will literally fill up. There will be no room for people. Sylvia so Cynthia's. Stout, who would not take the garbage out. The poem in Where a Sidewalk Ends about a girl who wouldn't take the garbage out. Eventually, the garbage blew up out of her whole house and out of her whole state. We laugh about that. and said, oh, that could never happen. But the truth is, if our state, the state of Ohio, doesn't figure out how to deal with the garbage that people is producing, yeah, it'll be a thousands of years or whatever, but eventually there won't be anywhere for people to be. That's just the reality. That's how the system works. So God is calling us for faithfulness in ruling out or excreting, getting rid of the adulterous behavior that is attached to idols. The bottom line is, we have to learn to proficiently, efficiently, Indefinitely, that means as long as you're going to live and continue to walk in the faith and regularly deal with the stuff that's coming at us and decide what's good and what goes. And God would say your worship goes in one place and one place alone, and that is to him. Right? But let's be realistic. Can somebody own a small action figure, idol, doll, made of gold, silver, wood, plastic, doesn't matter, and not worship it? Absolutely. Can someone be involved with sports and not worship sports stars? Absolutely. Can someone be involved with music and not worship music idols? Absolutely. That's possible. Right? So these are all things that are in the world that God has made it possible to partake of and even to use for his glory, but you're going to learn, you have to learn to process them. And God says you cannot process them this way. You cannot let them become idols of worship this processing that has to be done is done to maintain, but more to benefit the purposes of the system. So the believer needs to process everything that happens to them in a way that it makes them more able to follow God, not less able to follow God. And God was calling them to do that. Also making them aware of the fact that those other people, in those other nations who were already into idol worshiping could potentially turn from idol worshiping, put God first, and be lumped into the covenant. That is what you and I have done for the believers in the room. We have said, there are these things in my life, they're good things, but they're not as good as God. So God will be first through Jesus, his son, and everything else will be processed according to that one standard. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why you said that you would be his God, that you would be his people and that he would be your God, right? That's what that means. A couple of quick illustrations from the New Testament before we go on to the third point. You've heard maybe the parable of the four soils. Basically, guys going out to lay seed, and some goes on the road, some goes on the thorn, some goes in the field, or some goes on the thin soil, some goes in the thorns, some goes in the field, right? And what goes in the field produces a lot of fruit, and it's good. What goes in the thorns gets choked out by the thorns, which is the cares and the riches of this world. And so what we say is, we never want our growth as a Christian to be choked out by the cares and the riches of this world. Because we have to learn to process the things that are happening. So we have to go, okay, like, look, I like food. I do. But if I eat too much food, in about five to ten years, I'm not going to be able to be functional doing what it is I want to do for the Lord, and therefore I can't do that anymore. Right? I don't like Push-ups, sit-ups, crab-walking, lifting weights, I don't like doing that, but if I don't do that on a semi-regular basis, then by the time I'm 55, or 65, or 75, I may not be functional to do some of the things that I want to do for the Lord. I don't like blocking time out of my day to study my Bible, just plain study it and write things down like the pastor's always trying to get me to do. That's hard work, academically, academically. Physically, it's time challenging, etc. That's hard. I don't want to do that hard work. But if I don't do it, then in a few years, I will be missing some key piece of my faith that God is calling me to. And whatever you are replacing that time with that you're not spending alone with the Lord, that's your idol. Whatever you're replacing the time that you're meant to be worshiping God or loving others with, that's your idol. Check it out. Figure out what it is and realize that the cares and the riches of this world are what's choking out your growth. But let's be really simple about this. There's another parable called the wheat and the tares that Jesus tells. It's another farming parable. farmer goes out to sow, and he sow, his servants actually sow. And then when the crop comes up, they see wheat and tares. funny thing about wheat and tares is they look very similar, but one produces fruit and one does not. Then they say, well, should we tear out the tares? And he says, don't do that, because if you do that, the roots of the tares will tear up the roots of the wheat. So leave them there, and then I will come and harvest. And everybody's like, well, that means, and it does, that when Jesus comes, he's going to harvest. There'll be people who said they love the Lord, but they were kidding themselves or others. They were lying. They weren't really following Jesus. And those people will be harvested and thrown into hell for eternity. People like to use it that way, and I'm not dis- dis- disagreeing with that use of that Parable, right? But I submit to you that the soil in the parable of wheat and tares is good soil. Right? They went out to farm and all the seed made it to the field. But then the weeds came up and they asked, how that, would that happen? How would you get tares in there? And he said, because the enemy has sown in bad seed in with the good seed. Right? So the, the this is the issue. You've got to be able to process what the enemy does in you, the things the world does, the things your family does, things your friends. Listen, you may have a great Christian family. They may love the Lord. They may be trying to serve the Lord. But the reality is they're all human, and they will make mistakes. And when they do, they may bring something to you that if you absorb it, you you're in a good field supposed to be producing fruit and all of a sudden you have a tear right next to you sucking the juice out of the soil so you can't grow big and produce fruit, right? You still have to be wheat. You still have to be wheat when the harvest comes. And I submit to you that the harvest comes according to the text that we just read more frequently than only at the end of the world. Now, I'm not trying to blaspheme against the Holy Scripture. Clearly, Jesus was using that parable to teach about his second coming Right? And I'm not saying he wasn't doing that, but I submit to you, based on the text that we read today, Deuteronomy 29, the harvest comes more often than only at the end when Jesus comes again. Everybody's thinking, well, I'm safe. all right. And then that brings us into our third point. When Here's the question. When is a person singled out by God for punishment? When I was in sixth grade, I had a teacher. He was my social studies teacher. And there were about 25 boys, no girls, in my social study class. Now, I don't know if they did that on purpose or whatnot, but uh, we were going through a rotation, and it turned out that we had 25 boys, no girls, in the class. And there was a young man who'd who'd been pretty much a troublemaker the whole time I'd known him in school. He would do things to get other kids to laugh. You know what that's like, right? Is the kid that does something to try to get everybody laughing. And everybody starts laughing, and they don't realize that they're actually leading the kid to continue to do bad stuff. Well, he was that kid. So this teacher, uh, the second week of class, uh, I think it was maybe third week, but it was in the very beginning of the second or third week class, came around, and we were all sitting in our seats working on paper, and he walked up behind that student and took two of his fingers and put it in this hole right here between your shoulder and your neck, and he pushed down real hard until the student was slipping down in his seat. But then, because he had big hands and we were still pretty small at that time, he had his thumb under his shoulder blade or something on his back or maybe it was his shirt, and he was
0: holding him so he couldn't shrink completely away from him. They called it the claw, right?
1: And uh, so then whenever this kid would be acting up, he said, I just want you to know, I've heard stories about who you are, and anytime we have trouble, you're going to get the claw. Now, he pretty well behaved most of the semester, but three, four times... He'd come and got the claw because he'd be goofing off. He'd throw something. The teacher would know it was him, and he'd go, and he'd give him the claw. And there was a few other boys that got the claw. There was a few boys that got the claw just because they wanted to know what the claw was like. They did something wrong. Just like They never did it again, but the first time they said, I'm going to do this just to see what that's like, and they got the claw. So I'm, what I'm asking you is, when is a person singled out by God for the claw? Because it sounds wrong. He hadn't actually done anything wrong when the fingers went down in his shoulder the first time. That was just to show him what was going to happen when he did do something wrong. Right? Then he did do something wrong and he got it. And then a couple weeks later he did it again and he got it. When does God bring the claw on somebody who is amongst his people? On somebody who claims to be his followers? So in this text, in what we just read, there are three notable things failings that bring a person to the point of God's claw. The first one is false teaching. If you'll look and it says uh, at the end of verse 18, so we'll read 18, lest there shall be among you a man or a woman, a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So the first thing here is poisonous fruit, right? Now, he's not just talking about a tribe here, because in the very next thing, it'll say, and it shall be when he hears the words, he hears the words of this curse, right? He's talking about an individual, an individual who brings poisonous fruit. Poisonous fruit is when you produce something that sends somebody else in a bad way, right? So you're producing fruit, maybe instead of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, you're producing Anger, wrath, malice, disappointment, frustration, whatever. You produce this fruit that becomes a stumbling block for somebody else and then they do it too and now we have a notable failing on the road to becoming somebody who gets God's claw according to what it says. The first one is poisonous fruit. The second one is wormwood. Now every single time you find wormwood in the Bible it always means bitterness. It's gall. It's that that people get. Bitterness. All right? And so, if the individual becomes bitter, so we've got one possibility, false teaching, another possibility is bitterness, and then the next one starts 19, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse, that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And so it's false peace. So the three things that put somebody in line for the claw of God are false teaching, bitterness, False peace. So I'm going to give you everything you need to know right now to have those things and avoid the trouble. Except there's a problem with each one and I'll, and we'll do it together. All right? So first of all, if you don't want to be a person that bears false teachings but also you're not truly following the Lord, what do you do? If you don't want to be a person that's bringing false teachings and therefore in line with the claw, so if you went in his class and you know he's going to need a claw whenever you act up and if you bring a... A false teaching, you're going to get the claw. What do you do? And you believe the false teachings, so what do you do? Anyone want to take a stab at it? If I believe the false teachings, but I know if I teach the false teachings and give the poisonous fruit, I'm going to get the claw. What do I do? Don't do it. Don't do it. Keep your mouth shut. All right? shut up. So if you have a false teaching brewing in you or a thing about you that could easily become a a stumbling block for others, then you could prevent the claw from God by bearing no fruit whatsoever. Except, what's the problem with that? John 15, 1 and 2 makes it very clear. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So if you say, I'm not going to bear fruit, God says that branch, if that person legitimately is even saved, they're going to be taken away. And if they're not, they're headed for hell and it's going to be bad. Right? So there is, what I'm saying to you is there is no escape. If you are a person who is bringing false teaching poison fruit, if you will, then there is no escaping the claw of God, according to this text and what the Bible teaches. Next is bitterness. So what do I do if I have bitterness or gall within me? In other words, I feel yucky about other people and what they do or about situations. What do I do? When whatever is going on in the world makes me want to gag. But... If I act out in that, then I will pay the price of the claw. So what do I do? Don't do it. Larry's got, the, Larry's got the cheat sheet today, apparently. All right. So I don't act out in my bitterness. right? I don't let anyone know that I'm bitter. That's not like a good plan. It's the best chance you got to avoid the claw based on what we're reading. Except... John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you and that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Guess what I'm saying? It ain't going to work. If you have bitterness in you and therefore you just clam up and don't let that bitterness out because you don't want anyone to think bitterness and you don't want God to come down on you, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fail in the commands of God And therefore, pay the price. Last one is false peace. So, I want to be okay. Right? I want to be, even though I know I'm doing wrong things, I want to say, God will take care of it. I've sat in the living room with a number of people at different times that made that very argument to me. They say, well, I believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, so now whatever I do, God is going to take care of it. So what you do in order to feel that way and not have a flaw is you have to have a healthy fear. You have to recognize that God is who God is, and he can crush you completely like a bug. right? So I have peace, God's grace is covering it, but I'm still going to do it, but I know God might crush me. Right? Humility, like, oh, I'm worthless. I'm, I'm no good, right? I'm not a good Christian. I'm not good at being a Christian. I don't ask anybody to follow me. I don't ask anybody to listen to my teachings because I know I'm no good as a Christian. Fear and humility. And if God wants to punish me for what I'm doing, that would be perfect justice, and I'm okay with that. I don't think he's going to because of grace of Jesus, but if he wants to punish me, I'm okay with it. I'm prepared to take my licks. That's what you got to do to avoid the claw of God. Except what? Why doesn't that work? Because, according to the Bible, Luke 13, 34 says this, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who send her, how often I have longed to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house has left you desolate, and I say to you, You shall see me until the time you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not have God. You will not have faith. You will not escape by saying, Yes, I'm willing to take my punishment. Oh, I fear God, right? By having a false humility. You will not have God in your life. And therefore, when the time comes you will spend eternity away from him. False peace does not work, and there's no way to avoid the claw. That brings us then to our conclusion. Real real quick, recapping what we've talked about. Number one, everyone was there. Every Israelite and lumped in by Moses was everybody who would be coming. Everybody who would ever hear the gospel. Everybody who would ever hear the word. Everybody who could become a convert. Those who would be taken as slaves. Against their will, everybody, everybody in every season of life, from every walk of life, in all education, all work types, all backstories, all witnesses and all converts, everybody was lumped in. And from that group, God was calling for faithfulness, ruling out any kind of adultery with idols. Nothing else could be worshipped except God. God claimed them as his people alone, those who would who were there, and those who would become converts. He claimed them as his people alone, and they were to claim him alone as their God. And a person would be singled out for punishment and wrath, notably for three primary reasons. Number one, false teaching. Number two, bitterness of soul. And number three, a false peace, thinking they were going to be okay. And that brings us to our conclusion. You are safe amongst the called, if you trust God in Christ and remain faithful. But you could be singled out for destruction if you adopt false teachings, become bitter, or conceive false peace. The truth is, outside Jesus, people are not okay. Without Jesus as Lord and Savior... People are going to hell for an eternity, and worse maybe than that, right now in this moment, while something could potentially be done about it, they are suffering bitter, endless loneliness, subjecting their worship, which could be of the highest caliber, subjecting their worship to things of this earth because they cannot find God. And all their life has been orchestrated All the places in which they live and will ever go has been set up. All the difficulty that they have ever faced, all the education that they have ever or never received, all the troubles and all the successes were orchestrated so that that person, the person in question, instead of adopting false teachings or having a bitterness amongst them or having a false peace, might believe In the one whom God has sent, His Son Jesus Christ. And be saved. And having been saved then, realize they are subject to all the teachings of the Scripture. All the covenant, old and new. All the callings on their life by God. And there's no, that's too high for me to understand. There's no, that's too low or menial for me to deal with. There's no, that's too expensive, it will cost me too much. There's no, well, I like this teaching over that teaching. I'm going to go with this one because it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. None of that. There's no, I go here because it's prettier. I go here because it's louder or quieter. I ran into a man this last week who has visited New Heights. Now, ironically, he's visited in two separate seasons of our existence, and he doesn't know it. He visited us on Main Street in 2009 or something, um,
0: 2008. We were in the 613 building, the small building, and we
1: were meeting in two services, and he visited one of our services. And
0: after that service, I visited him at his home.
1: And he told me that he would not be back to New Heights, and the reason is because it's too loud. The music was too loud, the people were too loud. The kids were too loud. Everything was too loud. And he is very deathly afraid that he will be deaf when he gets older, that he will lose his hearing. And the doctors have told him because of his time early on in his life, whatever he was doing, demolition, something, blowing something up, whatever, and it messed with his head, his his ears, and he would lose his hearing as he got older, and he should be very protective of his hearing. He said, I will never be back to New Heights because it's too loud. That's what he told me. Now fast forward about uh, 12 years maybe 13, in 2020, 2021, something like that, he visited New Heights here. Now, when he visited New Heights during the Inspirational Moment time, somebody, one of the kids, I think it was Jason, actually played a song on the back, and it was from a, a Disney movie. It wasn't a particularly loud song or whatever like that, but uh, he, said, he asked me when I saw him this week, he said, do you still allow young people in your church to potentially choose a song to play. Now, we don't do that as much as we used to because we're going live right now to Facebook and we don't necessarily have copyrights on all those things, so it's tricky. So we haven't been doing that as much. We've been doing more reading the lyrics and talking about the songs. But legally, we're within our rights to show a song and talk about it afterwards. That's allowed. You're allowed to do that legally because you're talking about the song. But that being said, we do still do it. And so once I figured out that's what he was talking about, I asked him we was talking about inspiration a moment in time he said, "No, no, I'm talking about." It. And I said, "You mean when?" And he's like, "No, no, not then. I'm talking about. It. He kept telling me I was wrong that it, but ultimately we decided that's what he was talking about. And he said, "That's why I'll never be back to your church." He said, "I have to protect my hearing, I have to know what's coming, what it's going to be like, blah blah blah." And he said, so he'll, and I said, "So what church are you going to?" And he said, "Well, I'm not going anywhere." And I said, well, has God told you to go to church somewhere? You know, I mean, I, you know as a believer, you, you're professing Christ, right? Yes, I am. He said, then you really should be in church, right? And he said, uh, well, but everywhere I go, I run into a problem. Now, that, as he said that, he was storming away from me. I was standing in a Immaculate Conception uh, Outreach Center, and I was getting groceries from them that they had left over. I was going to take them back. Wednesday, take them back to the uh, life station. And he stormed out past the old ladies, you know, and he said, well, everywhere I go, I find a problem. I said, I'm out of here. He threw up his hand. I'm out of here. Yelling, mind you, at, with old ladies right in front of him. So I'm sure that wasn't really protecting their hearing. But anyway, he's he, and I said, I'm out of here. Everywhere I go, I find a problem. And I did what I didn't get to say to him, but what the Lord said in my heart at that time, and I almost followed him out, but it wouldn't, it would have been hard, um, and I didn't, was it's not about whether it's loud, it's not about whether or not he finds some other problem or some other reason. It's about his faithfulness. Hear me now
0: in the small schoolhouses of old. There were first graders and there were 12th graders.
1: And when it comes to what the Bible says, you may be in this room right now and you may be a third grader. But you're responsible for all of it. You're answerable to God for everything that God says in his covenant and his grace and everything that Jesus ever taught. You're responsible for all of it. So you need to make sure you get every bit of it that you possibly can. And you'll get whatever. So if it's something that's you're just not dealing with it yet, you're not there, and you don't understand it's even an issue, you may only get 40% of it, and you're responsible to get that 40% of it. Or if it's something that you've dealt with before and it's totally taken care of in your life, and you've totally put it behind you, you may get 100% of that, and you're responsible for 100% of that. And before you say, why do I got to hear it again, something I already heard, you need to understand that I have seen people who have heard something 20 times. I have a person that I'm ministering to now that has bitterness of soul. They have allowed themselves to become bitter. And I am trying to work with them and help them, but I cannot bend over backwards and I cannot resolve that. Only God can. Okay? So I'm hoping that we'll get there. But the problems that person has had, that problems did not give them bitterness of soul. They have a responsibility to excrete they have a responsibility to take in whatever the world throws at them and to go, this is not for me, I'm going to let it go. This is for me, I'm going to take it in, I'm going to use it, I'm going to build myself. This is for me, but it's a little bit too much, so I'm going to let it go over the top. Whatever I can't handle, I'm going to let that go and I'm going to take what I'm supposed to take in. This is for me and this is not. I take some of this which is not. I decide not to take some of this which is. You're responsible. responsible. That's poison fruit. It's bitterness. It's false peace. You're saying to God, God, I am your child. I will do whatever you tell me to do. Then he tells you what to do and you don't do it. Either you're a liar or he is. That's the bottom line. And if you have poison fruit or bitterness or false peace, you're in line for the claw. Because the end of that text that we read says, That God will single that person out for destruction. It says that he will bring the curses of this book down on their life. Not, Not when they die and go to hell. When he does, when he realizes they have false peace, when he realizes they have poison fruit, when he realizes they have bitterness of soul, that's when he'll bring it. And he'll single me or single you out from our families. You think God is not able to deliver a nuclear explosion and contain it to one body size? He absolutely can. With the cells in our own bodies, he can. He doesn't need anything else. He is able to do it. And he can single us out. So what do you do? Well, if you're a producer of poison fruit, you need to repent. You need to stop. Stop. You need to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I will not teach something or I will not fail to teach that which is in God's word. I will not teach anything contrary to God's word and I not, will not fail to teach what's in God's word. If you're a person filled with bitterness, you need to repent. You need to repent. It doesn't matter who did it to you. You need to repent of your bitterness. They are not at fault. If you still have it, they are not at fault. You are. Repent and turn to God. And say, I will not have bitterness of soul. Not me. God's word. And false peace. You say, I'm okay. Jesus died for me. He covers all my sins. Whatever I do. And then you go and do something that you should not do. And you know you should not do it. You talk away you shouldn't. You don't do what you should do. That's false peace. You have false peace? You need to repent. And turn to God. And get real peace. Real peace is when you say, I will not intentionally do anything that God doesn't want me to do. I will not intentionally fail to do anything that God wants me to do. Not for anything this world has to offer. When the cares and the riches of this world come, they're going to come. Because the tares are still growing in the good soil. So they're going to come. And when they come, I will be wheat. I will be producing. If they hate me, if they kill me, if they persecute me, if they chase me out, if they take my money, my job, my home, my family, if they kill my wife and my kids, I will be wheat because I know who God is. Maybe you're just a convert. But I hope not. I hope you've witnessed something amazing that God has done. And if you have, then I hope you'll bring real teaching and real love and real peace into your day, and the problems that you face, and the family that you're living in, to the strangers that you meet on the street. And when we do that, not only will we not be in line for singling out for the claw, but on top of that, we have the opportunity that the people that we see wrapped up in idol worship and doing abominations in the world, will win. The next time you run into somebody who's doing something really, really stupid, I mean, something that it gets your goat. I cannot believe that they would do that. You go up to them and say, "Can I talk to you about Jesus?" Let them say no. What happens if they do? What's it going to hurt? You'll be found doing what it is that God called you to do. Instead of going, "Ah, stupid! Ah, I can't believe it!" Walk up to them and say, "Can I talk to you about Jesus?" Well, they might be persecuted. If you're persecuted for the faith, God will reward you. If you're unwilling to be persecuted for the faith, then you have a false peace. And God will reward your false peace with a destruction that you are not interested in. Let us repent and turn to the Lord God.